Hey there, my name's Aryan Shah, and you're listening to the Earth Size Show. Today, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Zarina Johansson from the Natural History Museum in London, talking about how we can use past species to determine future theories and the fate of life on Earth. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Earth Size Show. This is the second episode, and I'm honored to have Dr. Zarina Johansson, who is a researcher from the Natural History Museums in London, uh, Earth Science Department, and she specializes in early vertebrate evolution. And we'll be talking about that and how older species and specimens can determine future theories. And you'll get to find out a bit more about what Dr. Johansson specializes in in a few minutes or over the course of this episode. So, Dr. Johansson, thank you for coming. Thank you for your time. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you for the uh, invitation. No problem. All right. So let's jump right in. So okay. the first question I have for you <clears throat> is, so by researching the development of the uh, vertebrate skeleton, which, of course, you're an expert in, does this provide any key insights into how vertebrates such as ourselves may evolve further in the future, um, especially given the current climate and how different species are becoming extinct today? Well, I was, I was thinking about this question and I thought I would like to concentrate on a group that I'm quite familiar with, which are the sharks and the rays. So the chondrichthians um, is a broad group which includes the sharks and the rays, skates, and a, an unusual group known as the chimera. And what I find so interesting about the chondrichthians is that their skeleton is made up primarily of cartilage, you know, compared to ourselves or to bony fish, where we're, of course our skeleton is made up of bone. But um, the chondrichthians do mineralize their cartilaginous skeleton. So um, in their backbone, for example, in their vertebral column, they have um, the central part of the vertebral column is formed by uh, an element known as the centrum. And the centrum is mineralized throughout. But the other parts of the skeleton have this very uh, fine or very thin layer of mineralization on the top of the cartilage, which is known as tesserae. And one project that I'm wanting to develop with my colleagues is to look at how the mineralization patterns uh, in the chondrichthians have changed through the fossil record to the current day. Um, so, of course, the thing that uh, preserves best in chondrichthians are the teeth and the scales. Or, or the denticles, but you do find um, examples of the skeleton preserved in the fossil record as well. So our idea is to look at the mineralization in living chondrichthians, the sharks, skates, and rays primarily, and try to correlate that with very specific environments to see if there um, are, so if you have like a warmer environment, do you have a certain type of mineralization or a colder environment? Again, a certain type of mineralization. So for example, in the deep sea, we know that in general, chondrichthians have a less mineralized skeleton. So we could take the, um, what we see in chondrichthians in the present and then try to um, apply that to what we see in the fossil record. So chondrichthians have a very deep fossil record. They go, in fact, all the way back to the Ordovician. So yeah. we have a long history to, to play with. And um, so there hasn't been much work uh, until very recently about how the environment affects mineralization of the skeleton. And so I was just reading some papers recently which have looked at things uh, like temperature, but also um, acidification. So ocean acidification is a 
is a problem today that, uh, that we face with the environment and environmental challenges. And the paper that I was reading, it was quite interesting because it said that they did a, a test where they controlled the levels um, of acidification in the water that these, I think they were states or raised were, were being kept in. And they found that with increasing acidification, they found that there was more mineralization in the Convertian skeleton. Okay. So there's some reaction to the acidification that causes, uh, they believe, they hypothesized that uh, causes the skate to release phosphate into its bloodstream, which becomes deposited uh, as mineralization in the skeleton. So that could be a real impact. Um, it could be good, it could be bad. So for example, uh, mineralizing a skeleton strengthens the skeleton, which yeah. is good, but it also makes the skeleton heavier. So that could be a real disadvantage for an animal that swims if it, if it finds itself having to expend more energy to swim. So I think uh, in that sense, those kind of observations on the skeleton and convictions uh, in the modern record can really tell us about how uh, an animal might react if environmental conditions change. So, and then we can apply that back into the fossil record, as I was saying, to see if there are any changes that might be linked to major climatic events or major, major extinction events. Yeah. And so we can, by moving through the fossil record to the, to the present time, I think we can start to build up a real record to see how the skeleton of these already quite endangered animals can be affected by things like climate change and ocean acidification. Yeah, that's very interesting because, and that's quite current um, given the climate that we're living in at the moment, because Absolutely. acidification is very big and prominent. Well, in, in that sense, and, and I think also with respect to um, just, uh, you know, climate warming, there's been more work done on bony fish. So there's a, a great opportunity, I think, to be looking more closely at uh, the chondrichthians or the cartilaginous fish um, as a group that is quite heavily impacted by extinction today. Yeah, I mean, considering they've been around for so long, as you said, since the Ordovician, um, yeah. I don't think enough research is being done. Everyone's quite interested in the bony fish, you know, because they evolved from placoderms and our ancestors. But I think the real magic lies in the cartilaginous chondrichthians um, that we see today. Well, one thing is that, um, of course, it's very easy to keep bony fish in a lab. You know, zebra fish is an extremely common lab animal. And it's really only in the last decade or so that the little skate, um, Leucoraja, has been used as a, as a model organism in the lab. And I, I believe this study that I was telling you about was on the little skate. So as, um, as work develops to be looking at chondrichthians as these lab animals, I think we'll be able to um, be doing more this type of research across a broader range of um, chondrichthians as well to see how different groups respond. Yeah, that sounds quite good, actually. Um, so especially relating that to what's going on in the planet right now and advancements in technology and being able to hold a wide range, a wider range of specimens than before. I think that would definitely help us to understand more about chondrichthians and them being present today and the extinct chondrichthians. That will help us to understand the hopefully evolutionary trajectory of some of the extant ones and also predicting the future in some sense. Well, we were also interested in um, looking at how adaptable chondrichthians were. So how quickly 
or, or are they even able to modify the mineralization in their skeletons? So the study I told you about um, suggests that they can, but are they able to, um, you know, as environments warm up, are they able to uh, change the mineralization within their skeleton or, as, or do they have to seek colder climates because they aren't able to adapt uh, their mineralization? So the skeleton, of course, is so important for locomotion, for example, um, and just being able to adapt in that way we think is very important, but we just don't know if sharks can do it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that process of evolving to those specific climate conditions would just take millions of years. I mean, it doesn't just happen overnight. So, I mean, that would take time. But I think considering the fact, um, as you said, because chondrichthines have been around for so long, I think they'd be able to adapt to it fairly quickly mm. because they've seen quite a lot <laughs> over <laughs> yeah, the period of true. time. Yeah, true enough. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, so the next question is, what do you think are the benefits of doing what you do? So researching and finding more about how chondrichthian dentition formed. And for the audience members who don't know what that means, it's how the teeth of cartilaginous fish formed. Well, um, I, we should all take a lesson uh, out of the uh, chondrichthian playbook because sharks and rays, <clears throat> excuse me, and skates can produce teeth throughout their lives. So I think most people would be familiar with shark's teeth and you know, seeing jaws and, and, and you know, nature programs yeah. and how um, important the teeth are for shark feeding. But what happens during development or during the growth of the animal is that if you can picture the jaw of a shark and go to the bottom of the, of the jaw, uh, that's where the new teeth are forming. So they form in tissues down at the base of the jaw and um, it's almost like a conveyor belt or an escalator. So the jaw of the shark is covered in teeth from the bottom of the jaw up to the top. And so you, perhaps you can picture teeth developing at the base of the jaw and um, developing cusps and mineralizing as it moves up towards the top of the jaw where it becomes functional and feeding until at a certain time, uh, whatever is holding the tooth to the jaw is lost and the teeth fall out. And because of this, um, the teeth, or excuse me, the sharks always have a functional tooth, or more importantly, a set of functional teeth along their jaw, which is very important for their feeding. Uh, rays and skates do this as well, as though, even though people may not be quite as familiar with them. Uh, they also produce teeth at the, at the base of their jaws, which move forward to be functional and then fall off. Now, my colleague in uh, at the University of Florida, Gareth Fraser, we've been working together for several years now. And what he's interested in is finding the genes that are responsible, not only for um, tooth development, but tooth regeneration, as uh -huh. he calls it. So it, the um, producing teeth at the base of the jaw is also in a sense tooth regeneration because teeth are lost, they're regenerated at the base of the jaw. So his work has produced um, several genes that are involved together, not only to uh, uh, develop the tooth, but to very carefully position the tooth along the jaw. So if you think of, uh, just picture a shark jaw in your head and that battery of teeth, uh, it's very precisely positioned. Every tooth on that jaw has a very specific position so that when the teeth do move up to the top of the jaw, you have the um, series of teeth along the top of the jaw, then yeah. they're lost and the next series comes up. So that's really important, not only 
the development of the positioning as well. But Gareth's work is also looking at um, the stem cells that are involved in tooth development. Now, stem cells are quite important because they are they're sort of multipotent cells that never die. And so they're available continually to produce tooth after tooth after tooth. Now, what Gareth would like to do, and I think this is such a great idea, is to take what he's learned from sharks and how sharks produce teeth in such great numbers over and over and over again, and see if he can in the future sometime apply that to humans. Now, wouldn't that be great if we could find some way, some way to genetically manipulate our teeth to allow us to produce more than the adult number of teeth that we have? So you can see that that could, I mean, we don't want to suddenly have a jaw full of shark's teeth, but wouldn't that be great if we could, you know, lose a tooth, but then be able to quickly produce another tooth throughout our lives. We wouldn't have to have, uh, you know, we wouldn't have cavities. We wouldn't have this and that and all these dental problems that we have already. So I think that's um, one of the really exciting things that is um, happening at the moment in, in, the study of shark teeth that has, I think, uh, will have a really direct and important impact on, on us, on humans. That sounds quite interesting, actually. I, <laughs> I didn't expect that when I asked the question, to be honest. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you learn something new every day. But when, when you talk about that being applied to humans, I, I immediately think of the further benefits of that as well. So say if you break a bone, um, or if you are involved in like a really bad accident, then mm -hmm. the potential for using such genes um, in such scenarios is just infinite, in my opinion, because the, the medical potential is just great. Sure, it's, it's just um, being able to have your tissues repair themselves um, uh, whenever you want, something that you can control, perhaps um, speed up, uh, just make more efficient. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, I think I think with teeth, it's kind of something that well, certainly at my age, that I would be very much interested in, in being able to produce more teeth. And it's just I think it's really exciting that um, we can take what we learn because, I mean, chondrixians are vertebrates. Vertebrates are animals with backbones. We are also vertebrates. So the genes that are um, influencing tooth development in chondrixians, we will have as well. So um, just being able to manipulate genes like that, I think is, is really exciting um, and, and very good on Gareth to um, be able to do that work on chondrixines that might have this amazing application for the future. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll definitely be looking more into your colleagues' work and I urge the <laughs> audience to do so as well because you never know what you learn. Um, and I think the main you know, point of this episode is to really highlight to the audience who are or aren't in the paleontology community just how intricate it is and how relevant it is to the wider life that we live and it's not just you know a dead subject as many people like to consider it as so yeah that, that's really good to hear actually just the potential of that of a paper mm -hmm. yeah. okay thank you for that um so so many people know about the Devonian extinction. So you have the Hangenberg event and so the Kelwasser. I discussed yeah. this with Professor Benton last time in the last episode. 
But um, so what impact do you think those events would have had on anathe um, stone radiation? And again, for our audience who do, doesn't know what that, uh, who don't know what that means, anathe stone is a jawed animal. Um, Nathos is a jaw in Greek and radiation is them spreading out across the globe. So Dr. Johansson, what do you think would be the impact on that? There was a very good study done, um, I think it was in 2010 by um, Lauren Stalin and Mike Coates, yeah. um, when she was a PhD student at the University of Chicago in Mike's lab. <clears throat> and they looked at that very subject. So what they did was they did a broad database survey of all taxa across the vertebrates, uh, when they lived and when they died. And they, what they found was with respect to these two extinctions that you mentioned, um, I think it's the Kelwasser, Kelwasser that's in the uh, Devonian, the, between the Franian and Flaminian, yeah. and the Hangenberg is uh, at the end of the Devonian. And what they found was quite interesting because the Kelwasser, uh, I believe is supposed to be one of the big five extinction events. So one of the major um, extinction events that, that um, uh, caused a lot of death among extinction amongst animals. But yeah. it looks like it's the Hangenberg at the end of the Devonian that really impacted Nathostone. So what um, they found was that placoderms go extinct. Uh, Sarcopterygian fish are very badly affected. So Sarcopterygian fish are what we also know as lobe fin fish. Uh, they include things today that like um, the lungfish that lives in Queensland, for example, and the coelacanth, which yes. um, probably a lot of your listeners have heard of. Uh, one of the descendants of Sarcopterygian fish are tetrapods. So four-legged animals, like ourselves. So uh, like Neil Shubin says, you are a fish because you have descended from Sarcopterygian fishes. Yeah. Anyway, the fish themselves, but not the tetrapods, uh, became uh, very reduced in numbers after the Hangenberg, as did the Acanthodians, which are often called the spiny sharks. Um, they also continue on beyond the Devonian Carboniferous boundary, but their numbers are very reduced. So placoderms extinct, Sarcopterygian fishes, and Acanthodians greatly reduced. But the groups that do flourish after the Hangenberg are the bony fish, the Actinopterygians, and also the Chondrichthians. So some groups have done very well, but other groups have done very poorly. And again, one of the things that um, Salen and Coates found was it wasn't the big five that caused what they refer to as this bottleneck, but it was the subsequent extinction at the end of the Devonian. Uh, into the Carboniferous period that, that caused the placoderms, one of my favorite fish groups, to go extinct. Okay, that's more interesting. So, um, so what, what specifically would you say about the Hangenberg, considering it happened later, what specifically about it would you say um, caused a dramatic impact and change of um, marine biodiversity? Well, you know, I'm not sure myself, maybe maybe Mike Benton had something more to say about the causes of the um, Hangenberg. Was it the Kelvosser that has something to do with, ah, I don't remember now. Was it Ocean um, I think. Was that the Kelvosser? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was the Kelvosser, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you would think that that probably would have had this more um, deleterious effect on the Nathostomes, but it doesn't appear to be the case. It appears that this Hangenberg um, extinction is more um, more problematic. But one thing Salen and Coates do know is that maybe there isn't enough sampling uh, of the Nathostomes at the Franian-Flaminian boundary for the Kelvosser. And so, you know, maybe 
future work will show that it was also quite a bad extinction event. But um, for what we know now, it, it seems to be the Devonian Carboniferous is the real time when some major uh, groups of fishes were, were badly affected. Yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, I mean, many people say that the uh, Permian Triassic extinction is the worst because it wiped yeah. out like ninety six percent of all life on Earth. But yeah, I think, yeah. in my opinion, I think the Devonian is the worst because it killed off so many fish species. Yeah, so yeah. many fish um, tetrapods do do well. Uh, it's just that the Starcopter regime fish um, are are badly affected. Yeah. Exactly. But then, then again, you still have some descendants today, as you said, like lungfish in the yeah. sea. So um, uh, I don't know if many of your viewers know much about placoderms, but they were an extremely successful uh, group of, of jawed vertebrates. Um, so perhaps um, that group going extinct presented all these new uh, environmental niches and opportunities for the chondrichthians and for the actinopterygians that they were able to take advantage of and really radiate quite quite dramatically. Yeah, exactly. It's like you take one piece out of the equation, then you have a lot more opportunities open up for the um, prey of the placoderms and also for the predators um, yep. of, placoderms, of which there were a few. So yep. really major shifts to the biodiversity and the ecosystem of the Devonian period. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that. Um, okay, so continuing on from that last question. So what, what do you think would have happened if the Hangenberg and Kalwasser events didn't actually happen uh, when they did. So would the oceans be completely different to what they are now or somewhere or something similar? Well, I'd like to think that um, instead of just looking at Lucaraja in the lab, we would be raising placoderms in the lab. So <laughs> maybe some of them would have um, survived to the present day. Well, um, obviously if the placoderms had um, continued to um, live beyond the Devonian, they would be a major, I would assume, a major part of, of any ocean and freshwater uh, system. So placoderms, as I said, were, were an extremely successful group. They um, lasted from the Silurian to the end of the Devonian, and they occupied both marine and freshwater habitats. And they also have been found on every major continent. Uh, that includes the Antarctic. So um, one of my PhD supervisors in Australia had actually done some of the initial work in the Antarctic to find Devonian rocks and then to find wow. placoderms in these Devonian rocks, um, but otherwise in every other continent. And so they were extremely successful. So I would think that uh, if they hadn't gone extinct, they probably would have continued to be successful, uh, competing with the Chondrichthians, competing with the um, bony fish and it's kind of an interesting scenario to think that maybe they would be the dominant mm. um, animals in these uh, marine and freshwater systems. So uh, in the Cleveland Shale, which is known from, um, from Ohio, Devonian age, we have uh, Dunkleosteus, which is one of the largest placoderms that we know about. It's, it's a very huge animal. And uh, there is some thought that one of the other uh, jawed vertebrates that's in the Cleveland shale is a, is a small shark called, called Cladosalaki. And it's thought that um, Dunkleosteus might have preyed on the shark Cladosalaki. So I would like to think that in, if the Devonian extinctions hadn't happened, we may still have Dunkleosteus swimming around the seas today, preying on fish. <laughs> and the whole 
tone of these nature shows would be very different if we had placoderms. I would love to see donkey up today. in action. That'd be great. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. It's so literally it, like a living can opener. Well, it was. Yeah, exactly. So um, who knows uh, if, if, they, if the extinctions hadn't happened, of course, that's a long time since then till now. Other extinction events, like you said, the Permal Triassic uh, and Cretaceous, but um, it would be interesting to think that placoderms would still be alive today. Yeah, I think many people would be quite excited by that. I know I would be, and I would be you, of course, excited. would be. Yeah. Today, I just look at catfish and think that these are, are modern analogs, at least of placoderms in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's weird to think, I was just reading an article the other day about tetrapods, and it's weird to think that snakes are tetrapods. Like, <laughs> they don't have any arms and legs, but they still are tetrapods. That's well, cool. that's true, but um, if you look in fossil record, uh, fossil snakes do have legs. Well, yeah. As, as in the extant snakes today, they don't have arms and legs, but their ancestors did, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that, that was quite interesting, actually. Um, so moving on from the Devonian period, now a more general question for you. So with the advancements in technology that we see today, um, such as um, CT scans and morphometric analysis being used in paleontology, do you think this gives a better insight into the past or into the future? Um, probably both. I mean, certainly working uh, on fossils, CT scanning um, has revolutionized the research. And there, that's not an understatement at all. It's, it's completely overturned the field. So, I mean, you can imagine in the past having to prepare fossils and just, you know, out of the rock and how time consuming that was. And uh, you had the potential to break um, fossils as you were preparing it, just human error. But yeah. now you can just take your rock um, put it into the CT scanner, um, and then you get your scan. Um, and if you're lucky, if you've done the scan well, you get a good contrast between the bone of your fossils and the surrounding rock. And if you have that contrast, then you can easily, uh, virtually, using various computer programs, remove uh, the fossil bone by bone from that rock and make a, make a virtual 3D representation of it. And not only CT scans, but also synchrotron scanning uh, used to be, uh, it, it's a more powerful type of CT scanning. It used to be quite difficult to get synchrotron scans done, but now it, it's becoming itself more and more common uh, to just put your fossil straight into the synchrotron scanner. And the nice thing about synchrotron scans is it gives you a lot of um, detail about the st structure of bone through the fossil record, for example. Um, so you don't have to necessarily section a fossil anymore, you can just do the synchrotron and get that detail as well. Uh, and just um, also for being able to identify the bones in, in a difficult fossil, uh, synchrotron scanning um, helps just so, so much. So now we have this, this uh, quite accessible way of studying fossils that we can apply across the board, plants, vertebrates, vertebrates, and you know, with a little bit of work, um, put into um, what we call segmenting the fossil out of the rock. Uh, we can just do so much now with how we study uh, fossils. We can put, we can reconstruct them yeah. better. We can, you know, separate the bones virtually, put them back together virtually. It, it's just been, it's just been amazing to be able to do this. 
Yeah, it, it, there's just a lot of innovation that's come around in the last few decades or so, especially yeah. for subjects like paleontology, which is yeah. great to hear. I mean, for my EPQ, which uh, for the audience who don't know, and it's it's basically an A level that you can do, an optional A level, where you write a dissertation or do a presentation on a topic of your choice. And my EPQ is about uh, biomechanics in paleobiology and its uses and whether it's relevant or not. And I had to read a lot of papers about using technology because biomechanics is predominantly technology nowadays. And I was just really excited by that um, because I'm hopefully considering going into paleontology in the future and being able to use that technology just seems quite exciting. Um, yeah. Well, I know we, we've talked about uh, looking at Acanthostega, for example, uh, Devonian tetrapod and um, other related tetrapods and how they um, sort of the, the transition from uh, water to land. And so to do that work, you're going to first of all have to CT scan yeah. Acanthostega and then segment, uh, you know, the toes and the feet and the um, limb bones out of the rock. So that is just before you even begin to do your mechanics, sorry, that your biomechanic, biomechanical study, you'll need to do this CT scanning and segmentation to, to get the separate bones that, that you can then subsequently work with. So you might say that, that fields like biomechanics wouldn't have been as possible or not as possible to do the range of work that you can do without CT scanning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're also interlinked together. So that if you take one bit out, you can't really do the next bit in the process. So that does make quite a lot of sense. But yeah, when it comes to Acanthostega, just the lack of evidence present and just the state of preservation of the fossil just makes it quite difficult to analyze in the field and in a lab. But just- Well, I, ha I have to say, um, the, the person who um, did prepare Acanthostega um, and, and quite a lot of the other uh, fossils for Jenny Clack uh, uh, who worked for her had done a fantastic, just an absolutely amazing job with the preparation initially. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to, um, got to remember her contribution as well, but um, with CT scanning now, uh, you can um, do a lot of, or you don't have to have as much preparation as you used to. Yeah, yeah, that, the manual element is kind of removed to a, a small extent. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, going on to biomechanics a little bit more. Um, so how important do you think biomechanics really is in the grand scheme of things in understanding more about our origins as fish uh, on Earth and also the future of life on Earth in general? Well, I was thinking about this, and um, because we are all fish, most of the interesting things in terms of the evolution of vertebrates has actually happened in fish. So if you want to understand things like, you know, how did you get your skeleton? How did you get your uh, brain? How did you get your muscles? How do you walk on land? How do you swim? You need to go back to look at fish and to get a better appreciation of those features, you need to do biomechanics, of course. So um, again, just to go back to Acanthostega, you're interested in how Acanthostega walked, uh, because Acanthostega, of course, has the limbs, has feet, but it's got um, more than five digits. So how does having those 
larger number of digits affect the way that um, Acanthostigo swam or how did it move on the sediment compared to an animal that had five digits. And I don't think we get uh, to uh, fixed to five digits until we get up into the Carboniferous. So yeah. it, is, it is a pretty major change. And again, you know, you would need to do the biomechanics of that to find out what the implications of five versus more than five were um, during that transition. Yeah. So for that kind of question, it's extremely important to be looking at the biomechanics. Of course, you need to have good modern models of, of movement that you can then apply because you need to know the parameters to apply to the fossils. So you need to have, you need to study the, the living animals as well. But I just also wanted to, to talk briefly about um, another project that we're developing, which is looking at the evolution of the neck. Okay. So of course, why here I'm moving my head around, why is a neck important in the evolution of animals? So if you think about fish in general, um, their shoulders uh, where their fins are, are quite, quite tightly attached to their skull. There's a series of bones which runs from the shoulder up to the skull. And it's in Tiktaalik actually, okay. uh, is one of the first fish. Uh, there are some other examples, but it's one of the first closely related fish to tetrapods, which shows that that connection has been lost. So Tiktaalik can move its head with respect to its fins and its shoulder. So suddenly you have the ability to move your head around, uh, even though you're still in water, to move your head around to see predators, and once you get onto land, that has huge advantages, of course, to be able to do that. Yeah. But to go back to placoderms, we're, we're interested in looking at um, neck movement in placoderms. So in placoderms, you have um, the head is covered in bony plate, as is the front part of the body, which we call the trunk shield. Now the head can actually move on the trunk shield um, at, a, at a joint, so it can move up and down like this. Yeah. Uh, of course, those sorts of movements are important in things like feeding, because if you can raise your head, raise your head shield, you can drop your jaw. And in that way, you can greatly increase the size of your mouth, your oral cavity. If you can do that, make your mouth bigger, yeah. you can eat bigger prey items. So that kind of movement is really important. And of course, placoderms are one of the first, um, well, phylogenetically basal or primitive jawed vertebrates. Yes. So again, this is um, occurring when we first see jaws, when we first see paired fins, we have a movable neck. But if you look carefully at that joint in the variety of placoderm groups, they're quite different. So different in uh, whether you have a, a knob on the trunk shield that are, you know, meets a, a concave surface on the head shield or vice versa, different kinds of joints. And what our project was interested in is just knowing whether, or investigating, sorry, whether that difference in morphology among placoderms uh, with the neck joint had something to do with the function of the neck joint. So this is where you need the biomechanical study to look at how in a, in a long extinct animal that neck was functioning. So again, that's a project that we're, we're developing at the moment, but that could really say something about, um, you know, in these early jawed vertebrates, did, were they already showing quite different morphologies, quite different functions, quite different functions in feeding, different environmental niches? And that's where the biomechanics comes in. That's very important. Yeah, that, that makes quite a lot of sense, actually. I wasn't aware of that project, um, but that does sound quite interesting indeed. 
um, especially just finding out because we take these things for granted. I mean, of course, but um, finding out where they came from, how they came about, answering those yeah. key questions, and yeah. what the point is in having specific organs or bones. I think that's very important to understand. Well, it's easy enough to say, well, there's a joint there, it must move up and down, but it, it comes down to biomechanics to look into that more deeply and um, appreciate uh, if, you know, if there's a range of motion, are there important differences? Um, that's where the interesting information comes from. Yes, exactly. And then you can make more um, calculations about that later on, about its diet and also a niche in its environment. Yep. But yeah that's yes, a great thing about the placoderms they were so wide ranging and the different diets different niches everything which is great yeah. yeah and of course then you can you can build that together as a data set with uh their different jaws uh different dentitions different um extent of the trunk shield on the body the types of fins they had and you can build a, a more complete picture of how the placoderms lived yeah that's that's really cool in my opinion yeah quite interesting yeah, <laughs> all right so um so that is the end of the uh, questions that i had prepared for you uh, but uh, is there anything that you'd like to say to the audience maybe um something innovative that you think they should know or just anything at all well i i, I thank you for um again inviting me to this interview and, and for these really very interesting questions because it made me think and sort of made me probe into to different areas. But um, I just would like to say, you know, that I think uh, the study of early vertebrates is, is so important. And I've been really lucky to be able to do this for a job at a great place like the Natural History Museum, uh, because not only do we have all these great research facilities available, but also extensive collections here um, to work on. So we have one of the top fish collections in the world. And so, you know, I would encourage you that if you do have an interest in, in vertebrate evolution that you, you know, you don't, please don't, no, <laughs> after Mike Benton was here, please don't study dinosaurs, come study fish. <laughs> <laughs> no, you might want to edit that one out later, I think. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to keep that in there, just so they know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, studying early vertebrates, um, as I said, that's where many of the major evolutionary changes um, that uh, really impact upon us today have occurred. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Johansson, for your time. Thank you for coming here today. Uh, those were some really great responses from you. And I hope that the audience have learned something new today, um, whether they're in paleontology or not, or a different field. Um, hopefully, they're encouraged to look more into your line of work and uh, the similar fields and interests as well. Um, so yeah, audience members, stay tuned for the next episode, hopefully coming soon. Um, and yeah, so once again, thank you, Dr. Johansson. And, uh, My pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks.